This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. There are very few names in the worlds of history, the arts, literature, the theater, that immediately, just one word, just saying that name immediately conveys credibility. Not only conveys credibility, it conveys an aura of being highbrow, of being distinguished. That name, of course, is... Shakespeare, And I'm not talking about Ed Shakespeare that used to write for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. No, William Shakespeare. But an interesting thing has happened, particularly over the last couple of hundred years. Shakespeare's life has turned into a big mystery that people are pouring over. There are more theories about what happened in William Shakespeare's life and the authorship of his work than there are about the Kennedy assassination. And there have been a lot of great books written on this. There's even a couple of very interesting movies on this subject. But if you're interested in literature, if you're interested in literary history, but you love a great detective story, then a book you absolutely have to check out is Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Its author is journalist Elizabeth Winkler, whose work has appeared all over the place. And uh, this is uh, just a beautiful, beautiful piece of literature in its own right. And it causes a lot of people to do some thinking about history. And it may even bring you a smile or two throughout the read. Elizabeth, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Frank. Thanks so much for having me on. Elizabeth, uh, before we get into some of the theories that you explore in the book and the very provocative, very creative title, tell me about your history as it relates to Shakespeare, namely the skepticism about Shakespeare and Shakespeare's authorship. Were you always a Shakespearean truther or did you start out buying the conventional wisdom that Shakespeare actually wrote all his plays? Oh, no, I was a very dutiful Shakespeare student uh, at Princeton and Stanford, you know, towing the line, writing my papers, never really thought about the authorship question, you know, because when you're in school, you really you, you study the plays. And there's not a lot of discussion of the biography or the person who wrote them. But I'd heard, you sort of hear, you know, I think there was an English teacher once who mentioned, oh, some people think it was really Christopher Marlowe or the Earl of Oxford. You hear that there's this question around the authorship. And I wondered why so many great writers and thinkers, Henry James, Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, Vladimir Nabokov, uh, the historian, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, numerous Supreme Court justices, all these people thought that Shakespeare was a pseudonym for a concealed author. 
Um, and I thought it was really interesting that these very, very sharp minds in literature and history and the evaluation of evidence um, all suspected this. And I wanted to know why. And I especially wanted to know why the subject was not talked about within English literature departments by Shakespeare professors, why they why they sort of ignored it, glossed over it. And I just started digging into it. And it's a fantastic mystery detective story. And the people who have any of your listeners who have looked into it will understand that it just sort of sucks you in. It, it certainly of, does. It certainly does. And uh, people, if they're interested in being sucked in, should check out Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. And l- let's let's say, Elizabeth, that uh, belief that Shakespeare may not have written the Shakespearean plays is maybe on par with believing that Kennedy was killed by multiple gunmen or that UFOs visit us on a regular basis, it seems like the people that are pushing so strongly against these alternative Shakespeare theories are the folks, are the Shakespearean scholars themselves. Who is this august group? They themselves seem pretty mysterious, maybe even more mysterious than the Hollywood foreign press. Who are the guardians of the Shakespearean (laughs) reputation? Scholars are, you know, they're they're uh, they're a subset of English literature professors who specialize in literary criticism and particularly in literary analysis of the plays. Um, and I, you know, I've loved my Shakespeare professors. They're wonderful people, brilliant writers and and um, thinkers. Often, I, I would push back a little bit against the comparison that you know conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination or moon landing things. I, you know, I think history. Historians understand that the past is always uh, subject to differing interpretations and actually debates about the past. You know, we're constantly rewriting what happened in the American South or, um, you know, history of Native Americans in this country. All sorts of histories are constantly being rewritten. So, you know, it's about interpretation. It's about how you interpret the evidence. And with Shakespeare, the evidence is pretty strange. It's pretty um absent in places that you would expect the evidence for his authorship to be there. And some people argue that there's evidence pointing to a different author. So it's really it's you know it's, it's how you it's how you analyze these different versions of the past. And by the way, I wasn't trying to be dismissive of the alternative theories. I am a JFK conspiracy theorist and believe uh, aliens are visiting us on a regular basis. So just so you know oh, okay. what side of the ledger I'm on. <laughs> um, what do we know about William Shakespeare's life? What do we know for certain? What's unquestioned by anybody? Well, we know when he was born and when he died in Stratford-upon-Avon. We know that he was a businessman. We know that he became a shareholder in a theater company in London. Um, We know he was a real estate investor. We know he engaged in petty lawsuits. Um, We know he died quite a wealthy man. Uh, When he died, he left a will bequeathing his assets to various people. Um, very meticulous will, but didn't mention any books, poems, plays, any writing life of any kind. It's a, it's a bizarre absence in his will because at the time of his death, only about half of the plays had been published. And you would think that um, a great writer would you know, have some concern for the preservation right. of their life's work, but he didn't mention anything about writing. So that, that's one example of one of, of the, the kind of peculiarity um, in the documentary record. Um, but, you know, he was a real person. Uh, no, there's no question about that. The argument that some people make is that another writer essentially used his name as a pen name, you know, which was actually quite a common practice in the Renaissance. It was a great age of pseudonymity 
and anonymity. And writers had a lot of really good reasons for wanting to conceal their authorship. You know, it was not an age of free speech. You could get thrown into prison or have your hand chopped off for uh, criticizing the monarchy or the church. Um, You know, women often use pseudonyms in this age for the obvious reasons that they have throughout history. It was not considered proper for women to be publishing works. Nobility were not really supposed to be publishing works of um, works of drama. It was considered sort of beneath their station. So all slews of people were using um, various means to conceal their authorship. I know you indicated that Shakespeare did very well financially while he was alive. Was he successful at all because of his writings? And if his plays weren't necessarily a big deal when he was alive, when did Shakespeare kind of rise to the level of cultural prominence that he occupies today? Well, writing uh, then as now was not a great way to make money, actually. Um, you didn't you didn't become rich as a writer. He became rich because he was a businessman and he was a shareholder in the theater company, which was clever. And he had a lot of property investments in, in London and Stratford. Um, so that, that that's why he had a lot of money. I mean, it didn't really have anything. There's no evidence that he was ever even paid for writing. For other writers of the period, you can find documents paying them for writing or referring to them as writers. You can't find that for Shakespeare. But the works of Shakespeare, the plays and poems, were famous um, in the Renaissance. They were well-known. Other poets talked about them, referred to them. Um, They were, uh, you know, some of his early poems were bestsellers. They flew off the the bookshelves of, um, of London. So, the works were were highly esteemed um, uh, quite quickly, and uh, you know. But then there was a period of kind of um, uh, when the drama was forbidden during the Puritan years, um, and it came back, and there was a resurgence of interest in Shakespeare in the 17th and 18th centuries, and his reputation was really solidified uh, during, I would say, the the Victorian era. It was an era with a George Bernard Shaw referred to as bardolatry, where Shakespeare became um, a kind of British god. Mm. He was held up as an icon, the national poet. Stratford-upon-Avon was this um, kind of pilgrimage site that people would go to, a bit like an English Bethlehem, to sort of pay homage to the poet. And a whole mythology about Shakespeare grew up, this this, this great veneration of Shakespeare. There, there was an even, uh, even a painting done actually in the, in the late 18th century, of the infant Shakespeare in a kind of nativity seat, comparing him <laughs> to a Christ figure. Wow. You know, he's really the British Jesus. Um, it's, it's a strange, strange reverence for him that developed there, and it's deeply tied to nationalism. It's tied to empire and, you know, Shakespeare being sort of the proof of Britain's cultural superiority and of its right to rule. Look, we have, we have Shakespeare. We're the land of Shakespeare. We're the greatest nation. You know, so that whole period... Um, during the 18th and 19th centuries is when the the reputation of Shakespeare as we know him today really crystallized. One of the things that the people who have questions about the authorship of some of Shakespeare's plays frequently point to, and you cover this a bit in your book, is that there's not necessarily any evidence that he left England, even though a lot of the work that he produced includes pretty vivid descriptions of places other than England. Is that your understanding, that uh, there's no evidence that he did leave England during his life? There's no evidence he ever left England, and yet many of the plays are set in Italy, 
um, and they show knowledge of Italian and of French and of a writer who knows specific details about Italian geography and Italian cities and the canals of northern Italy and Italian customs and colloquial language. You know, someone who's been deeply immersed in Italian culture and scholars have no way of explaining this with Shakespeare. Well, they try to. They, they say, oh, well, he must have got it from books he read or from um, Italian travelers who he bumped into at the pub in London. I mean, there's no evidence for any of this, but they sort of assert this kind of stuff to cover up the gaps. But, you know, that's not a very scholarly approach on their part, no, cer- which cer- is kind of what's funny. Certainly what's funny not. Is about this whole subject is what the scholars start doing things that are very unscholarly and attempt to sort of maintain the traditional belief. One of the things that the the Shakespeare uh, traditionalists, I'll call them, have said is that, well, people didn't start raising questions about this until a couple of hundred years after he died. One of the people that you quote in your book uh, puts the date of the first Shakespeare conspiracy theory with, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, around 1840 or so. Um, Mm -hmm. What is your understanding of when the first questions were raised about the authorship of Shakespeare's plays? Well, that's just wrong. And that's the the Shakespeare scholar James Shapiro claims that in one of his books. I mean, he says 1840, but you can find a century before that in 1759, a character in the London play asking who wrote Shakespeare. Um, Benjamin Disraeli, the, the future British prime minister, wrote in one of his novels, and who is Shakespeare? We know as much of him as we know of Homer. So questions about the authorship were circulating before the 19th century. And I think you can actually trace them back to the Renaissance. Um, to the author's lifetime. In the 1590s, writers generated a kind of swirl of rumors hinting at a pseudonymous author. There was, you know, a very gossipy world of literary London then. One writer referred, for instance, to a crafty cuddle who was hiding in a cloud of ink and shifting his fame onto another name. And there's so much gossip around this person, Shakespeare, at at the time. And some of the people I interviewed in the book think that it is referring to, you know, another person who was using that name. Oh, talking with Elizabeth Winkler, her book is Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. When you first wrote an article, uh, I think it was for The Atlantic, raising some questions about uh, the authorship of Shakespeare's plays, what was the reaction to you? What was the reaction to that article? What was the reaction to the ideas you raised? Oh, absolute fury. (laughs) I mean, this is what made me write the book. I was so fascinated that a question about the authorship of 400-year-old plays could uh, rile people up so much. You know, I realized that there's a real taboo around questioning the authorship. Um, It gets people really emotional, sometimes really angry, which as a journalist I find fascinating. You know, this is a literary historical question that doesn't have any real, you know, real world consequences today. It's, it's a really academic question about the authorship of these works, but people get really upset if you, you know, deny Shakespeare. They call you Shakespeare denialist and this sort of incendiary language that they use around it. So, I mean, that's why I wanted to research the subject more and write the book. I wanted to understand how doubting the authorship became so taboo, it became almost a moral problem. There's one Shakespeare scholar, Stanley Wells, who a few years ago he said it is immoral to question history and take credit away from William Shakespeare of Stratford. 
And I just find that absolutely hilarious um, because actually history and historical inquiry is all about questioning. Right, of course. So to, say, to, to say it's immoral to question it, you know, it's, it's, it's treated as heresy. It's a kind of religious taboo because Shakespeare over the centuries became such a religious figure in Britain and in much of the, of the world. In the prologue to your book, you chronicle, uh, very uh, funny, but not intentionally funny, I don't think, lawsuit involving the estate of a woman who died in 1964 and she left a third of her estate to a society to investigate whether or not Sir Francis Bacon actually wrote the works of William Shakespeare. I've heard this theory and if you look at some portraits of Sir Francis Bacon, they do look a little bit like some portraits of uh, William Shakespeare. For people that don't know, he was the Lord High Chancellor of Great Britain. What is the Francis Bacon theory in a nutshell, and do you lend that theory any credence? That was the first theory that sort of arose in the 19th century uh, when people were trying to pin the works on another person. And and it became popular because Francis Bacon had the profile of the kind of person people thought should have been the author. You know, he was um, well-traveled, well-educated, moved in the court circles of Elizabethan England and, you know, European politics, and he was a lawyer. And in the 19th century, scholars were realizing that there's an incredible amount of legal knowledge in the plays, that Shakespeare mm. uses legal phrases um, in metaphors and figurative language, and he's, and he's constantly drawing on this knowledge of the law. Uh, lawyers and Supreme Court justices have remarked on it. Um, but when you look at the, the life of William Shakespeare of Stratford, he had no legal education. <laughs> So it's another one of these mysteries. There's there's actually so many of them. But people thought, okay, this person, whoever the author was, must have had legal knowledge. Francis Bacon was a great lawyer. He was a brilliant philosophical mind. He was a genius of his age. He must have uh, written the works of Shakespeare. And obviously we want people to check out the book where you chronicle several of the uh, Shakespeare theories. Give us one or two others. What are some of the other theories that are out there about uh, th- that doubt the authorship of some of these Shakespearean works? Sure. The most popular candidate today is Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. He was first proposed in 1920 by an English school teacher. Uh, and he became very popular because he traveled in the very areas of northern Italy, um, with which the author seems most familiar. And there are all sorts of uh, little episodes in the plays that parallel events in his own life. So you can actually hmm. connect the plays to his own um, his reading, his biographical sort of experiences, they seem rooted in a person when you when you connect them to him. Whereas with Shakespeare of Stratford, there's a, a total disconnect between the man's life and the works. You know, they, they just seem to come out of nowhere and you can't really like trace the influences or, you know, the you know, where these works are coming from, what they're about. Um, Right. I saw the film Anonymous where that was the theory that they put it in the film Anonymous, which I enjoyed very much that uh, that that he was actually the author of uh, of Shakespeare's works. A lot of people have um, liked that theory. David McCullough, some Supreme Court justices espouse that theory. So it's quite popular. Um, Some people have looked to a female author. And yes, that is part of my title because I was interested in that theory. The Shakespeare plays are strikingly feminist for their time. They portray women as um, very witty and often outsmarting men, and they're often um, they're criticizing patriarchal norms of their society. 
they're very aware of their subordinate position as 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 women, and they're trying to do things about it. They're they're trying to, um, you know, get out from their father's grasp and marry the man they want to marry, or you know, avoid an abusive husband, et cetera. They're really really intelligent hmm. plays when it comes to these these very modern. We think of them as modern um, ideas of feminism. Do, do you have a particular um, woman in mind or or do people that subscribe to that belief have a particular woman in mind or could it have been just any woman? Well, there, there's there's two women who have been proposed. One is Mary Sidney, uh, the Countess of Pembroke, who was very interested in drama and writing and supported writers and, and, was, in, and was a writer herself. And so some people think that she contributed to the plays that the first folio, the collection of Shakespeare's plays um, published in 1623, exactly 400 years ago, was was dedicated to her sons, which is an interesting connection. Another candidate who I originally wrote about in the Atlantic was um, is Amelia Bassano, whose family comes from northern Italy, and um, the town of Bassano is referenced in, in Othello, and that's where her family's from, so there's some interesting connections there. I think people tend more towards the theory that if a woman contributed, she contributed perhaps in a group, you know, that these plays mm. were not written necessarily by a single person. And in fact, Shakespeare scholars themselves are increasingly seeing co-authors in the plays, other hands that they see collaborating on the plays, um, which is funny because they're admitting, OK, this person, Shakespeare, didn't write th- these works alone. There, were, there are other hands in there, even though those other hands have, haven't been credited um, but now we're discovering them. But no, 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 you can't question Shakespeare. You know, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there. Um, as far as you're concerned, what is the wildest theory that you've heard about the authorship of these Shakespearean plays? Oh, the wildest? Um, well, I guess some people might say the Marlovian theory is the wildest, although it's also a really fun one. Christopher Marlowe was a playwright in Elizabethan England, and he died, or he, he supposedly was, was killed in 1593, right before the first works bearing the Shakespeare name appeared. And his works are stylistically very similar to Shakespeare's, and scholars have remarked on their, on their similarities. So the Marlovian theory holds hmm. that uh, Marlowe, who, who he was a, not only a writer, but also a spy for the Elizabethan government, so the the Marlovian theory holds that Marlowe was not actually murdered, but that he escaped um, to write wow. under the name Shakespeare. So that's a, that's a bit of a of a wilder theory. Certainly, that is wild. That, but that, that has persuaded some people over the years. How did you feel? And you know, I'm not trying to uh, ruffle any feathers at all. But how did you feel when the Wall Street Journal was reviewing your book, and along with other Shakespearean, uh, you know, entries, and they called some of the theories that you profile half baked? Were you offended by that? Uh, that's a typical response to the authorship question. I mean, it's been really interesting to see the reactions to the book because they're they're polarizing you know, reactions. Some some reviewers have loved the book, and then other people, often Shakespeare scholars, you know, hate it. Uh, so, you know, something very odd is going on in the culture when a book receives such polar opposite responses. You know, it's really, it's provoking people. So it's, I take reviews to be, you know, cultural documents recording reactions to this subject, and they tell you more about the reviewer than they do <laughs> about the book. Um, they tell you something about the person reviewing it. So, you know, who was that reviewer? He's an elderly uh, English professor from Southern Methodist University. 
fairly conservative, and he's aligning himself in that review with his colleagues, with the Shakespeare scholars, dismissing dismissing the idea of a different author. Um, okay, you know, fine. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> hey, um, why do you think there has been such a resurgence in the scholarship about Shakespeare? Not only are they making new movies about him, but in the Wall Street Journal article that reviewed your book, they reviewed two or three other books that explored different aspects of Shakespeare's life. I mean, this is someone whose works have been around for centuries, who died centuries ago. Why are people still so fascinated by him and still working so hard to dig into his life and his work? Well, there's a resurgence this year because it is the 400-year anniversary of the first folio. That's the collection of the full collection of plays first published in 1623. So in 2023, there's a renewed interest in looking at Shakespeare. Um, but, you know, the larger interest, of course, it has to do with the works themselves. They're so transcendent. They speak to humans across different cultures and across different times, and they continue to be incredibly powerful. Um, but it also has to do with the fact that Shakespeare is such a mystery. He really is a mystery. There was a gathering of Shakespeare scholars a few years ago where one scholar said the greatest uh, lacuna of all is the mystery of how he ever became a writer in the first place and described Shakespeare as a black hole. You know, there's this great mystery right. around how these plays were written, how they came into the world. What was the nature, the genius of this person who created them? Um, they're almost like uh, sort of divine works. They seem to spring out of nothing, you know, truly out of nothing. They're, they're, they seem inexplicable. You, so you there's, mean, that's, I mean, that's why, that, that's partly what gives them their um, a sort of godly, miraculous quality, right. right? That we don't fully understand how they came to be. And it's also what uh, incentivizes people to go searching for their origin. You mentioned the um, the fact that he wrote about places that there's no record of him having been to. He wrote about legal issues when he didn't have any legal training. Beyond those aspects of circumstantial evidence, what are the key pieces of evidence that suggest that someone other than Shakespeare, the person that we know as Shakespeare, wrote this pl- these plays? I mean, there's so many different kinds of evidence. You know, there's the absence of evidence on the one hand, um, the absence of other writers, you know, referring to Mr. Stratford, you know, writing plays in Stratford-upon-Avon. People who knew him didn't didn't seem to see him as a writer. Um, there's the, the strange absences in, in his will. Um there's there's other bizarre things like his daughters. He didn't educate his daughters. They hmm. both seem to have been illiterate, which is very odd when you look at how intelligent the women of the plays are. You know, they write sonnets, they read Ovid, um, they compose letters. It's, it doesn't fit, you know. It's this, this general sense that the glass slipper doesn't fit, the works don't fit this man. But then, you know, you can, I mean, you can look at other kinds of evidence. There are all these rumors about this person, Shakespeare, and, and whispers about the authorship and when the first folio is published in 1623, a poem uh, prefaces it, a poem by another writer named Ben Johnson. And he begins the poem by warning about praise of the name Shakespeare. He says those of delious ignorance, blind affection and crafty malice will misconstrue praise of this name. And he goes on and on for 16 lines about this. And it seems pretty clear that he's saying there's something going on with this name. I mean, you can also look at the sonnets, Shakespeare's sonnets, where the author says, 
that his name is going to be buried, um, that his identity is going to be lost. He, he goes on and on on this theme, this sense that he's going to be somehow forgotten, but his verse will live on. He knows his verse is going to live, but his identity will die. And that's the, the, the sonnets are the closest you get to the poet's voice because he's not speaking through a character there. Th- those are, I mean, you can say he's, uh, you know, it's the speaker's voice, the speaker of the sonnets, but they're really anguished personal poems. Um, and you get a real sense of of the writer behind them, and he and he does seem to he says my name, um, you know, is going to be buried. So it, it's it's kind of there in the work. <laughs> in your book, you write that a lot of these Shakespearean uh, scholars, well, maybe not a lot, but close to twenty percent, maybe they sort of agree with you on the QT. They uh, will whisper to you that they agree that there are some questions about this, but they're afraid to say it publicly. What percentage of folks do you think actually do have questions about the authorship of Shakespeare's works and? Why do you think they're still so reluctant to come forward with those those beliefs? Yeah, it's hard to know what the percentage is. In in uh, a few, I can't remember exactly what year. A few years ago, the New York Times did a survey that found that some seventeen percent of Shakespeare professors in America had some doubts about the authorship. Um, and it really depends. You'll find Shakespeare professors who are completely adamant, staunch defenders of the faith. And others who are others will say kind of, oh, who cares? You know, we have the plays. Who cares who wrote them? That's kind of a cowardly response because, you know, you're a Shakespeare scholar. You're supposed to know who wrote the works that you've dedicated your career to. So I think that's kind of a lame response on their part. But it's a little bit of confession that they're not quite sure. Right. They say, who cares? Um, And then there are other scholars who admitted to me. You know, one scholar wrote, yes, of course, Shakespeare could have been a pen name or a scam or a committee of various people. He just wrote that to me. So um, why are they so afraid? Because no one likes to be ridiculed. Mm. And there's been so much ridicule around this subject for so many years. And that's something I also trace in the book, just the history of um, really bashing anyone who doubts Shakespeare. You know, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like the way, um, you know, atheists might have been treated in 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 a very religious age, you know, in the Victorian age, you know, you were a heretic for questioning the divinity of Christ or, you know, whatever. People are treated as heretics. You're sort of metaphorically burned at stake. Uh, And no one likes to be ridiculed. No one likes to be publicly humiliated. You know, our sense of shame is so strong. People will choose death over being publicly shamed. They just, that no one wants to endure that. And for a lot of scholars, it's just not worth it. You know, why would they, why would they hurt their careers, their reputations over that? And most of them, they're not focused on the authorship. They're focused on writing about the plays and analyzing the plays. And they don't really care who wrote the works. And they just kind of ignore that part. Do, do you think we'll ever know the truth about Shakespeare's authorship? Yeah, I think we will. Really? I think there's a lot of really fascinating research that's being done, actually. And that's that's part of what I wanted to highlight in the book. I mean, I think it's going to be a, it's, it's how paradigm shifts happen in any field in the sciences and history, you know. There are new theories that are proposed. The old guard furiously rejects them, condemns them, but eventually the old guard dies out, and the new ideas are gradually, um, you know, gradually they're accepted and things shift slowly over time. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a shift right now with scholars acknowledging that there are other co-authors in the plays and, and more people becoming interested in the subject. And in part, the Internet helps because 
you don't have to be a Shakespeare scholar to get access to these Renaissance texts and, and learn about the subject. So it is speeding up um, interest in the subject. And I just think, you know, uh, people are drawn to knowledge. They really are fascinated by the mystery. And, uh, you know, eventually, I, I can't, I, sometimes it feels, the, the, na- the nastiness around the subject is pretty horrible Absolutely. sometimes. And it, can, and it can feel like, oh, wow, um, you know, this is just never, <laughs> never going to see the light of day. But knowledge does have a way of eventually coming to light. And, you know, Mark Twain wrote in 1909, he wrote, it'll be three centuries at least. Um, so if Mark Twain was right, we have about two centuries to go. <laughs> Talking with Elizabeth Winkler, her book is Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. Elizabeth, gun to your head. If you had to tell me your best guess as to what the truth is, we're not going to hold you to it. What would you say? <laughs> oh, good try, Frank. I'm not answering. Fair <laughs> enough. Book, all right. Now, the book explores all the theories, and I wanted it to leave it to readers to make up their own mind and to sort of struggle with the problem on their own without me telling them what to think. It's, I, it's open-ended. I hope people do check it out and share with me their theories after, uh, after reading the book. You know, the other great mystery in terms of literary authorship is the theory that William Goldman actually wrote Goodwill Hunting. If you're looking for a subject of your next book, I sincerely hope you'll consider that one. Oh, that's, that's fun. Yeah, well, there are all sorts of authorship, attribution, controversies out there. You know, this is not even unique, there, but it's just one that gets unusually incendiary. Indeed. Elizabeth, thank you for the time. I appreciate you staying up late. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other Side of Midnight. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.